This is L with the elevated blood pressure. And this is Tight Jaw J. And this is Work the Unworkable, a podcast where two women of color navigate the workplace web and untangle it one strand at a time. Hey, Elle, is this still a good time to chat about your job situation? Where are you? Work. Girl, what you hear is the norm. Hashtag toxic. Let me get to the coffee room, okay? So, yeah. Toxic workplaces, toxic bosses, toxic colleagues. Everyone and everything is toxic. But what does that even mean? Great question. Welcome to Work the Unworkable Workplace Feud. You walk into your new job. Name something that sends up a red flag. Workplace saboteurs! Hot trash co-worker slash supervisors. So yeah, girl. Workplace saboteurs. Um, you know, this is really a catch-all phrase to capture what is a range of behaviors. People who steal your work or take credit for the work that you've done. People mm, who talk yes. over you. Liars. People who cast blame and actively undermine you. Workplace saboteurs and trash co-workers take many forms. And I think for the people experiencing or um, are the subjects of this behavior, you really don't recognize the radioactivity until it's too late, right? Like, common workplace advice says that you should suss out your, your new work environment before you start, right? During the interview phase. But how right. do you, how do you do that? People are putting their best foot forward while you're interviewing, oh, they're smiling. Right? They're telling you how amazing this workplace is. Great work-life balance. People, this is, I've never worked with much smart people. Hello. And Hello? then you get started. Trash. Keeping trash fire. Like, and I'm just, I'm just going to keep it real out of the gate. In a recent work experience during the interview phase, you know, the, first of all, I only met with the executive leadership and I should have been a red flag, right? You want to meet with mm. people at different levels in the organization. But even still, you know, like you, like we just mentioned, people are putting their, their best foot forward during the interview right. phase. But the, the person that I was interviewing with kept saying, this is a special place. And we just love each other. And <laughs> right, 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 right. My alarm should have gone off in those moments um, when I was having those conversations because the the oversell should have been a, a clear sign that something was amiss with the situation. Um, and, you know, we're in, I'm not going to say post-pandemic because we are right now Delta in the Panini press. Coming on strong. <laughs> so coming on strong. Keep, 
Keep your masks on, folks. <laughs> Keep your masks on, including the five states. And they're not listing the five states in our uh, uh, article titles, but apparently mm. five states are about to get it with this Delta variant. But like the Panini press is still happening. And, you know, there has been a lot of discussion around uh, working from home and desire to return to work. And what I thought was really compelling, and you and I talked a little bit about it beforehand, was that in a recent New York Times article, they surveyed folks, and only 3% of Black folks wanted to return to in-person work. And that is very revealing. And and just to be clear, 3% Black folks surveyed versus 21% white folks surveyed and obviously black and white aren't the only racial and ethnic groups in this country but that's seven times <laughs> seven times the number of white folks want to return to in-person I mean work. literally that's that three percent just throwing back to some stats I feel like that's like a margin of error <laughs> like you're <basically, laughs> right 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 you know? that's one thing I did learn one thing I did learn <laughs> but yes it's literally like and it and if you dig, I would love to dig into that data further. But I think, you know, related to today's conversation, it's really the kinds of workplace environments that people would have to return to that is right. really deterring them or not even deterring them. Well, yes, deterring them, right? Because there's a lot of this discussion around the number of people that are quitting um, and being very selective about the jobs that they take because after this pandemic, people are like, Enough is enough. I don't have to put up with this. It's too much. It is too much. And so, yes, workplace saboteurs, trash coworkers, um, in my personal opinion, I think are factoring into this 3% stat and probably the other toxic behaviors that we'll touch on throughout this particular episode. But, like, from your perspective, Jay, what are some examples of workplace saboteurs, trash co-workers in your personal experience or even just like at a high level, what is your understanding of that? How would you describe it to a listener who's trying to actively sort of identify if these are people that they might potentially be working with? Right. I mean, I'll start with by pointing out that in all of the different types of scenarios we're going to be talking about today, there's a range, right? So for me, an example that comes to mind is I was recently working as part of a central team to coordinate our annual and semi-annual planning across different orgs, right? You got to make sure that roadmaps all line up. And I had done quite a bit of legwork behind the scenes to make sure that different teams were talking to to each other, Mm -hmm. timelines matched up because there's so many dependencies. Mm -hmm. And I go into a meeting. That's right. (laughs) Go into a meeting with my manager who I've been, you know, kind of keeping posted on what work I'm doing. I didn't tell him everything that I'm doing Mm -hmm. because when you're reporting up to super senior folks, they're not interested in every single nut and bolt, right? They just unless know, they are this, right, <laughs> which sometimes they are. But yeah. this particular manager was like, "I just want to know that we've got the right connection points made and things are going right." So right. cool. Hey, just FYI, I've met with these folks. I think we should be in a good place. 
go into this meeting with someone I thought I've worked with before, thought that they were a pretty good partner and collaborator, right? We had worked together on the timeline. I had shared out the timeline that really set up these other teams Mm -hmm. to anchor to only to have him and one of his team members present their timeline, which all the dates were the same. The format was pretty much the same as mine. Their timeline, air quotes. Correct. (laughs) And be thanked profusely by my manager who asked and said, I don't even know how you all got this aligned. This actually works really well with our timeline. Mind you, I know both of these timelines because I've been managing them. This person smiled and nodded knowingly. I was in the meeting, right? It's not like I wasn't in the room. And it wasn't taking credit in terms of, yep, I did all the work. It was the lack of acknowledgement of the legwork that I had been doing for the past couple of weeks setting up meetings, keeping folks apprised on what Mm. executives wanted Mm -hmm. that really got me steamed. And this is someone that I've known for a good number of years, worked with on projects. And to me, that can be what a workplace saboteur looks like. It's not someone who necessarily, and I've heard stories of people who outright copy decks, replace names, (laughs) take your work. That's super obvious. But this is someone who took all the work that I had done and gave me no credit. And thankfully, to his credit, my manager asked to chat after that meeting and said, hey, thank you for the work that you've done. I know that you had mentioned you've been meeting up with these folks. Right. But that's not always the case where managers understand that their work has been taken. It takes a far more aware manager because I've also this whole deck stealing, I've had that happen to one of my directs did a ton of work. And we go into a meeting with a peer manager of mine, someone slightly senior. She's showing me the deck. And I'm like, wait, these slides look so familiar. Because they're identical. Correct. (laughs) And I talked to my direct afterwards. And I'm like, why did those slides that that looked like your work? And he was like, yep, those were all of our slides that they just took in. And I was like, why didn't you say anything? He was like, well, I figured as long as you know, that's fine. But I went and told my manager because he was like, how did they? And he was not pleased. But I digress. The point being, these people can smile to your face and take your work in a second breath. What about for you? I mean, before even getting to me, I, I just want to dig a little into what you would just eliminate in terms of these situations whereby folks don't necessarily outright, cop, you know, redact your name and put theirs. But it's this silent sort of uh, acceptance of the praise Credit. of the, right. of the, um, and an inability to do, to just say, extend the grace and say, hey, you know, thank you so much for acknowledging the hard work. Actually, you know, I work alongside with my collaborator, Jay, who put in the work. I just want to, you know, take this moment to acknowledge for the folks in this room um, that this is the person who was the main contributor. And I think, um, you know, such a small dress gesture, it doesn't take anything away from you. And the fact that, that these workplace saboteurs can't even have you know, the decency 
to, to make that brief acknowledgement. Just to, you know, they would prefer to just smile and not say anything because by smiling you and know, not saying anything, go ahead. In their heads, they're not doing anything wrong. That's it's, the crazy is that thing, true? right? I mean, I might have to push that's back true. on that. You're right. You're right. Uh, let you me push, right. push back on that. That silence is uh, acceptance of, of credit without accepting credit. So if it ever comes back to them, they can say, well, no, I never said that, you know, I did the that's work. That's true. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, especially for black people, for people of color, I want us to be reflective of that these actions aren't benign in a lot of when they apply to us, they're not benign. They are that's not. A, Go ahead. Yeah. No, that's a great point. I mean, this person was a cis straight white man and I'm an Asian American woman. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right, right? There is a part of this where I am giving them so much grace yes. and benefit of the doubt for, oh, they didn't, maybe they didn't intentionally mean it, but I think that's what's worse about mm -hmm. this brand of workplace saboteur mm -hmm. because they brand themselves as generous. Mm -hmm. They're like kind of fall into maybe like, this is like the corporate white savior, if you will. Mm -hmm. And they get to spin this narrative of, oh no, I didn't do that. I didn't say it, but you didn't deny that truth. Exactly. Either. And they Thank count you on your, that out. no problem. And they count on our silence. The thing yes. is, is that they know that they can count on our silence. And so um, they can continue with this this narrative in their head that they are, are gracious and kind because they know that we will not step up and say, well, in actuality, I contributed in this way. Um, because, you know, the pushback that we'll get for even suggesting that we contribute. It's so much stronger. You'll be <laughs> yes. seen as petty exactly. for asking for credit for the work that you exactly. did. Whereas a white man in your same shoes, or probably a white woman, would be given the grace of being a boss lady and stepping up to get credit for her work or simply getting their rightfully due yes. acknowledgement. Exactly, exactly. And one other thing before just sort of thinking, you know, about it from my perspective, I want to highlight is this notion of like, um, I think it was very noble of your supervisor to sort of pull you aside and thank you uh, sort of separately from the larger group. But this is also something that the workplace service work can um, count on, right? That silence, right. that lack of, of acknowledgement in a public way, in a public forum allows the narrative to continue. So you do get sort of a, a pat on the back in the comfort of your one-on-one in a separate meeting outside of the larger group. Um, but that doesn't disrupt the behavior in a way that a public acknowledgement would. And so, um, you know, I would encourage managers and other supervisors, like, yeah, thank your people privately, but thank them publicly too, in a, in a real yes. and meaningful way. Yes, and it can be in asking questions, right, mm -hmm. or acknowledging, because there's, let's be real, we know that there are so many politics around mm -hmm. how you take credit or ask for credit for the work of your team. Yes. People can be petty, they can weaponize your words. In mm -hmm. this other instance, my manager was a brown man going up against a white woman, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. we know that that probably would not have played out real well for him. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. 
Um, but yeah, just in terms of like hot trash co-workers and workplace saboteurs, um, without pulling from, um, well, actually pulling from a specific experience, uh, a recent one, you know, one example for me is the person who, um, oftentimes in a senior leadership role, but there was a person in my, my workplace who was in a leadership role who valued, absolutely valued my contributions to, to work and the team but kind of similarly did not want to give me credit, right? And so mm -hmm. an example of that is insisting that I be a part of like very uh, critical meetings, but being quiet. And so I'm in the space, but I'm not contributing. Right. I'm absorbing all of the information. However, I cannot speak on it in that forum because he and I will, will talk about it you know, in our one-on-ones and he'll be able to extract from me my ideas, my observations. But the expectation is that I am not contributing in real time in the actual meeting. And for me, that is toxic. That is a level of insecurity that really transcends um, race because this, this was a gender dynamic. This was someone mm. who shared my racial background, but, um, uh, did not want me to be seen as someone who could contribute to the organization in a way that he couldn't contribute, right? right. Because my contribution was viewed as sort of uh, usurping his authority. And so, again, these are just examples of like what we've experienced in terms of workplace saboteurs or like trash coworkers, but this can take many forms like a saboteur or a hot trash co-worker slash supervisor because we need to make sure we <laughs> emphasize this happens at all levels yes this, this is peers this is peer managers partnering teams all of that and i just need to come back to one thing that i think is also really kind of graded at me when you gave this story because we've we hear the phrase uh, having a seat at the table mm -hmm. so often. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I couldn't quite come up with the right analogy. But for me, it's like in this situation, this person did not understand. I have that Princess Bride gif, you know, the one where it says that word does not mean what it think <laughs> you think it means. <laughs> and I think this senior leader had the, oh, let me give L a seat at the table, but it's not a real seat. No. It's like a, it's like a janky folding chair. And <laughs> Listen, it's a stool. It's not even at the not, it's right. table and it's, height. <laughs> it's not even at the table, right? It's like at the back corner. The perimeter. You know those yeah. meetings where there's the conference room table in the And there's not and enough chairs. <laughs> yes. And so you've got to sit on the side. And this is where I think Cheryl Sandberg or someone else is like, make sure you sit at the table. But leaders and managers, if you're asking someone to come to a meeting, don't have them, if you want them to just shadow, be clear about that, right? Because yes. there are definitely instances where it is not appropriate for someone who's more junior to speak up because there may be other political dynamics or tensions at play. And you don't, you don't want to throw your team into that. But if you're trusting, like if I am bringing you in, L, for your expertise, 
then I also need to give you an actual chair, not this like paper cardboard situation at the periphery of the room exactly. where I've also like muted you. That's Listen, that's not opportunity. That's not opportunity, but also the extractive dimension. It's like, you know right. that when I come to this space, I am uh, absorbing the information. I am analyzing and thinking critically about that information. And because I'm going to give me you a gem of exactly. information back. And later on in that private space, unacknowledged, just the two of us, whereby you can take whatever that gem is and present it as your own. And so mm -hmm. absolutely, that is sort of a most recent example of a workplace saboteur slash trash supervisor. Name something else that sends up a red flag. Gaslighting. So we now hear this phrase all the time. And actually, when I was trying to look this up for the right definition, mm -hmm. the dictionary definition, I think this is from Oxford, is manipulating someone psychologically into questioning their sanity. Now, for most of us, that probably sounds a little bit dramatic, but also not in a workplace situation. Mm -hmm. And I think Vox has a really great piece on gaslighting where they talk about how you start questioning your own reality. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, what gaslighting has looked like in the workplace is when I stop trusting what my state of facts or my fact base was because somebody keeps changing mm -hmm. that fact base and it can lead to major mental health challenges. Yep. But the thing that's also really pernicious about it is like the movie where this term was first derived from, where this husband is like tweaking the gas in the mm -hmm. light. So mm -hmm. it was flickering and she literally was like, wait, this gas is the light is flickering. It's like, no, 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 it's not. While messing with it is that we can't always catch it. Yeah. And so you start to just question everything. And so I'm, I mean, I've got plenty of thoughts here, but Elle, what are some examples that come to mind for you? In terms of gaslighting, you know, Gaslighting, and I have to be transparent in terms of my own understanding of gaslighting. Um, you know, it was a, a phrase that I was introduced to, or a word, a term that I was introduced to, probably via social media, um, right? Or maybe a LinkedIn posting, and I, I really tried to wrap my head around it. Um, and so, I think to your point. Um, it's questioning your reality and it's without sort of internalizing really the concept It's really hard to call out the behaviors, the gas lighting behaviors that you've experienced um, uh, throughout the course of, <laughs> of your career, really. And for me, more than anything, it's it's what happens if you're unclear, if you've been gaslit, I think. Mm. Above all else, um, as someone who um, 
in terms of this particular term, struggle with naming the behavior in the moment. I want to call out the importance of allowing yourself time to reflect on um, behaviors that make you uncomfortable, that lead you to sort of that questioning sort of uh, spiral where you're, you're, you're second guessing your reality. And if there is behavior that you experience that leads you to that feeling that leads you to uh, a level of discomfort, take a step back and think critically about it. You know, um, I think all too often we sort of leave ourselves in that that moment of second guessing. So we, we second guess whether or not we've been mistreated or gaslit in the moment and then we move right. on. And we move on before we've effectively processed. And then, you know, the next moment it of gaslighting happens. Yeah. And it just keeps on happening. And so, you know, I think I, I, you know, I don't want to speak for other people, but I count myself among those who, when it comes to this particular behavior, I need a moment to pause and reflect on like what has happened before I can name a thing. For you though, like, I feel like you probably have some more concrete examples of like gas, like actual gaslighting behaviors, something that, um, behaviors that are commonplace, um, and that for a long time we haven't had sort of a, a label for. Right. So I think one really concrete example is I remember I had one workplace where I had been running a project solo for quite a few months. And we had recently hired a new class of folks. So new hire class, one of them was going to be assigned to my project. And in my one-on-one with my manager, I asked her, hey, you know, we're bringing on this new person. Here's a couple of different options for how mm-hmm. we can split up the tasks. I think one option here that could make sense because this person is newer to the organization, doesn't quite understand how we've done everything right. There's quite a few mechanics that are basic, but foundational to being Mm. able to successfully run a project. It could make sense to have her take those on. And then I hold on to some of the other work that one I've been doing because it's a little bit more complicated, but also because I've built the rapport and relationships with some of our external stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And she said, yep, that makes sense. I think you should definitely delegate all of these kind of basic, simple tasks to her, especially because she's newer and you keep, you know, the more complex work. Mm-hmm. Cool. A couple days later, I hear that in the manager's meeting, when my skip level was asking, hey, how has Jay thought about divvying up these tasks? My manager said, oh, well, actually, she wanted to give all the shit work to the new person. And I Mm. told her she shouldn't, which, by the way, listeners, was the exact opposite of what she had said to me. And I learned about this from another manager who'd been in that meeting. So hashtag allies. It's really important to know what's being said about you in rooms that you're not in. Absolutely. Because what if that person had not been in that space to, um, if not advocate for you, at least share for you the context of what was being said about you, you know? Right. And that was an instance where without 
that manager telling me this, when we had a follow-up conversation, it was as if we'd never had that first conversation when I talked to my manager. And of course, I didn't bring up that I had known that she had said this, Mm -hmm. but she just flipped the script and didn't even acknowledge that we'd had that first conversation, right? And so that's an instance of gaslighting, I think, in its clearest where one set of discussions is had we come to alignment on how projects and tasks should be divvied up. Mm-hmm. The next conversation, it's a complete 180 and they're acting like we never had that conversation. Right. And so now you're like, well, what version of reality was true? And yeah. I remember in a separate instance where uh, I was working with a manager we were based out of different cities and we'd been on the phone discussing what were the next steps. I didn't catch everything because the reception was kind of spotty, got reamed out by my manager afterwards. But the lesson that we took both took away from that call was always document. Always. And so she would tell me, okay, after the call, send me an email because the reception was sometimes spotty, let's walk through what we discussed and make sure that we're on the same page. Mm-hmm. And I cannot emphasize the importance of this enough. It's not always going to keep you from being gaslit, of course, because there's another party involved, mm-hmm. but it helps to establish a trail and it helps to reinforce for you I was not wrong. Mm-hmm. I actually did remember this correctly. Yeah. And so, you know, for those for those of us like myself who struggle with, you know, identifying the behavior, go to the feeling. Like analyze the feeling. Are you feeling right. crazy? Are you feeling confused? You know, do you have trepidation about making the most basic of decisions because your supervisor or colleague has tw- like played with you and twisted your mind in such a way that you don't know what direction the you know the situation will go based on because the they're constantly changing timelines they're yes. changing deliverable expectations and then reacting as if they never changed their mind right right so interrogate you know it's for me it's like interrogating the feeling and acknowledging that you feel that way you know and that it's not uh, necessarily a you thing versus uh, a them thing you know gaslighting is slippery I'll say that for sure. I feel like it, it is slippery in the sense of like uh, it eludes or for so long it has eluded a label. And now that there's a label, there's so many behaviors or situations that can fall under the umbrella of gaslighting. Um, and some of, you know, sometimes one struggles to sort of name a thing. Right. And don't be afraid about not getting the labeling correct because mm-hmm. again, there are so many shades of gaslighting it is yeah it's it beats out crayola boxes of crayons in terms of the hues (laughs) and that's what makes it so difficult to catch yeah so we've now touched on two but you know continuing with our workplace feud what are some other toxic scenarios that you've seen microaggressions so listen, microaggressions, you know, and, and Jay and I have talked offline about just 
how um, potentially unexpansive, <laughs> uncomprehensive the word microaggressions is in right. terms of how impactful um, microaggressions can be on your, your, your mental, emotional, and physical health just because they happen in, at a high volume. They typically happen at a high rate. It's not like a, usually a one-off situation. And so uh, leveraging Vox again, shout out to Vox for writing these articles that help, to de- help us define some of these um, new terms um, related to workplace behaviors. But in identifying or understanding what exactly are microaggressions, um, I read that you know, per box, it's essentially a label for a specific type of daily indignity. And, you know, as I was reflecting uh, with Jay earlier, like the thing about microaggressions, especially for black people, is that it is not like a workplace exclusive behavior. Um, as a black person, those daily indignities present themselves constantly throughout the day in my personal and professional interactions. And, you know, they're not just insults or insensitive comments or generalized jerky behavior. Um, you know, and I really like this definition from Vox. They are the kind of remarks, questions, or actions that are painful. Why? Because they have to do with a person's membership in particular group, i.e. because you're black. I.e. because you're Latinx. I.e. because you are East Asian or South Asian. Um, because of your membership in that group um, that's discriminated against or subject to particular stereotypes. And so this is not just someone being rude. No, no, no. Microaggressions cut much deeper. You know, and as I noted, you know, when you think about them, you have to think about them in their aggregate form because the likelihood that they're happening in isolation or infrequently is pretty slim. Even if a stranger on the street, you encounter that person just one time, the fact of the matter is on that same day, you're encountering multiple strangers who are who potentially engage in that same behavior. And so you have microaggression A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, and you know, by the time that you get back into your house, you're 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 at end, um, and that's the reality. And particularly, and you're speaking, I'm speaking of the United States and this society. Like this is what this is the lived reality and experience for Black people in this country, for other um, uh, minority groups in this country, and it weighs on you so heavily, um, and. You know, it impacts your emotional health, your your physical health. You internalize those things, and so um, it just takes up so much emotional energy and space in your life that part of how you move about in the world and interact with the world is how you navigate a microaggression. The de- it's a decision point about if you react to it, you know, and then what that reaction might entail. Because if you overreact, you get the police called. Then you have to interact with law enforcement, you know, or in the workplace setting, it's je- potentially jeopardizing your job, right? Because you are calling right. out microaggressive behavior. And so it's so uh, burdensome because it's so many. 
it's so burdensome because it is not infrequent. Um, and it, it takes uh, many different forms. And I'll just call out, you know, specific examples that I personally encountered. You know, it's the intentionally unanswered email. You know, I'm not answering, you know, Elle's email. I'm not answering this black woman's email. This person, I, I want to make sure this person knows her place. And so, um, I'm not answering it. You know, you're beneath me. It's, it's being left off meeting invites or out of spaces where as a part of your job function, your job responsibility, you absolutely should be in those spaces. And someone is making the, the, um, using their discretion to leave you out and can do it because they know that you don't have much in the way of um, the ability to sort of address their behavior, you know? Um, it's the assumption that you're the person providing the service. And when I was talking to Jay earlier, it's like my husband and I have been in grocery stores multiple times, multiple times. This person is in street clothes, not wearing, my husband is in street clothes, not wearing the uniform of the store. And yet, random white people will walk up to him and ask him where they can find him. So not in a sort of friendly, oh, you might happen to know, but in a, the expectation is that because you are black, because probably you are male, that you work here and that you will right. be a service to me. And that is a part of the daily indignity. You know, it isn't to minimize the work of folks who work in the, the retail space, but it is the active assumption that everybody in the retail space or anybody who's black in the retail space is more likely than not to work there, A, and B, um, are of service to me. Another example I'd say is refusal to make eye contact. Like you just you you just won't do a cutout over my head, right? You don't see me. You will render me invisible because you don't think I should be at the table. And again, you want to put me in place. And these are specific microaggressions that I have actually experienced, that I continue to experience, and that many people of color and many black people um, experience on the day to day. And I think for so long, similar to the the other things that we've discussed, there hasn't been a label and a way to define these behaviors in a way that demonstrates how harmful they can be. Um, and so, you know, in that way, we're developing a language and trying to describe it. What about you, Jay? Like when it comes to microaggressions, what has been your experience? Yeah, I mean, before I go into that, I think just from the conversations we've had, even just now, right? You you literally shared out a laundry list and that's, I'm positive, not even close to comprehensive nope. of the microaggressions. And I think one thing that I found really interesting that I've seen that's evolved is in a lot of workplace writing, there's been a discussion where microaggressions are actually a macroaggression. And I think mm -hmm. you've pointed this out. It's a constant state of violence against your very existence in pretty much every space. You're never yep. safe from someone's assumptions and the harm of those assumptions. Of course, it's still valuable to speak of them as microaggressions because I think we do need a word to mm -hmm. describe things that are so slight mm -hmm. that it's hard to tell what's actually behind them. 
but the micro as macro aggression is helpful because it forces us to recognize that these indignities encompass someone's everyday existence in ways that we have to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. And I think about this because as an East Asian Chinese American woman in this country, I am not saying that my community has not been harmed, but it is a very different history, right? Mm -hmm. There's so much discourse in media of East Asians in particular as being closer to whiteness. Mm -hmm. And I think as a result of that, for me personally, I don't have the same kind of experience with being able to quickly list off microaggressions. But I think also part of that is they're often so slight that it's hard to actually tell, well, is it is that because I'm a woman? Is it because mm -hmm. I'm Asian American? Is it mm -hmm. because of just who I am, right? You can't parse it out. But I think the other piece that stands out to me is for those of us, and I know that I've been guilty of committing microaggressions. I'm not going to pretend that I'm like, innocent, <laughs> right? it's just not true. It's really important that when we are called out or when someone reacts to something that we've said, don't fall back on your intention. It's really yeah. like your intention, honestly, is irrelevant here. I'm not asking you I don't know what your you know folks different faith practices are but this is not like go to confessions and right. bathe in your guilt. This is about when you are called out for that when someone reacts, don't fall back on Darvo. We talked about this, right? Don't make yourself the victim. Mm -hmm. Apologize, say I am so sorry for that. I need to think about this and do better in the future. Apologies are always a little bit messy, I think, for people because they're caught up in their emotions, in yes. the sense of goodness and badness as a binary mm -hmm. in the moment. When again, that's not relevant. Like deal with that separately. Apologize and be thoughtful, right? Before you speak or act, pause. What, like, do I need to say that? Right, why am right. why am I about to say that? Or if I'm going through an invite list, why am I not inviting someone? Is it mm -hmm. because I don't want the opinions that they're going to share? Is it because yeah. I don't think they're good enough? Mm -hmm. Or is it validly they are in an organization that literally has nothing to do with this project mm -hmm. and therefore it is not relevant? Like they're in marketing and I'm talking about a back-end product <laughs> that no one outside this company will care about, that's different, right? Right. Reflect and do better. I mean, yeah, as I, I think that's probably the most important thing for myself to think about. And again, mm -hmm. just because I feel like I can't come up with clearly discernible examples, which isn't to say they don't happen. And I think yeah. that's something I want folks to be aware of. Again, to Elle's point earlier, if something makes you feel uncomfortable, sit with it, talk about it with friends to see why, why did that thing grate on me mm -hmm. so much? And that's okay. You yep. don't always have to have a label, mm -hmm. but if it helps use these labels to analyze what's happening around you. Yeah. All right, Jay, you walk into a new job. New job, job. Name something that is a red flag. 
Hot and cold behavior. Shout out to Carrie Perry. <laughs> so I know I seemingly jokingly mentioned Katy Perry's song, but honestly, for me, it just says it all. And I don't know if this is like a TikTok or other hip, trendy social media slash workplace writers authorized term, but <laughs> it's felt really appropriate for me. And what I mean by hot and cold is those situations where a colleague or your supervisors in one breath praise you to the high heavens mm-hmm. and in your next meeting, they are castigating you and just, it feels like they're trying to break you down in every single way. Yes. And you're like, what happened between that meeting and this one? Like, I'm not a phoenix. I can't be reborn <laughs> out of the ashes that fast. So, yeah, I mean, I've had meetings where I've had a manager who's publicly praised me for doing so well with executives in one meeting. Then in our next one-on-one, he is telling me that I've done X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, F, just everything wrong. And I'm thinking, so did I like what, how, I don't even know how to square these situations. And I don't know if you read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as a kid, but that's kind of the other thing that I think of. Like, I don't know if I'm dealing with a supportive Dr. Jekyll or a monster in Mr. Hyde. What about for you? I mean, I think it is important to to call out the fact that um, this hot and cold behavior is very similar to gaslighting in the sense that it leaves you in a state of confusion. Like the person's behavior um, leaves you wondering what is going on, but there is a distinction. Gaslighting, I think, is like involves some level of active like lying, right? right. It, it involves deceit um, to a certain extent. Um, whereas this hot and cold behavior, um, and you know, I talked with Jay about this. I have a very visceral and recent experience um, with this behavior. I had, um, and I say I had, it is past tense because, listen, in the year of our Lord 2021, and really just as a personal sort of mantra, anyone who knows me well enough knows that my tolerance for workplace nonsense is pretty low. I think life is hard enough. As well it should be. (laughs) Right. Like, um, you know, at the very beginning of uh, the launch of our podcast, I let you know that I am a perennial job popper, but it is absolutely for a reason. And it often involves behavior that is not um, productive behavior that undermines my emotional um, and physical well-being. And this most recent scenario is no different. I had a supervisor who publicly and privately praised the work that we did. But the instance with me was that she was also a, a bully. She was also a bully in many ways. And so when I engaged in self-advocacy, and that self-advocacy was never undiplomatic. As a black woman, I know that there are certain stereotypes that are ascribed to me, you know, 
just as a black woman, but also in a professional setting. This is my livelihood. This is how I support myself and my family. I don't want to jeopardize that. And the society is hostile towards people like me. And so I'm very mindful, especially in the workplace, that setting about how I speak. So when I engage in self-advocacy, it is never, in my opinion, in a way that should generate um, a strong negative reaction, right? And so, you know, this person, this supervisor is constantly praising my work. When I call out that bullying behavior that she also engages in, all of that work went out the window. And she literally, uh, and I'm using a, a phrase that Jane sort of helped uh, coin to help me capture sort of what was happening, but she, she was essentially weaponizing my self-advocacy. When I did not act or fall in lockstep with her when she got this sense that she was losing over losing control over me and my person that's when the the dr jekyll came out dr jekyll the crazy one no dr jekyll i think is the nice one mr hyde is the crazy mr hyde okay the crazy when i engaged in self-advocacy the crazy one came out right and so all that good work that i had done was out the window it all, I mean, she would almost have to generate sort of negativity around the work that I did in order to, um, I mean, it's kind of hard to describe in a way, but like she would absolutely publicly and, and privately praise my work. But again, when I engaged in that self-advocacy piece, she felt like I was, she was losing control, that, that I wasn't aligned with her. And so all of a sudden it switched. All of a sudden, if she were ever called out, uh, when when she was called out for being uh, a bully to myself, then, you know, that work went out the window and it left me in a state of shock. It left me wondering whether I was good at my job. It left me wondering whether the self-advocacy route was the, the right route. You know, I had been personally building up to this sort of strategy of, engaging in self-advocacy at work. And that experience absolutely left me wondering whether that was the right tack to take generally, not just with this person, but generally, like, you know, almost expecting that I would be sort of castigated um, if I ever called out my supervisor's bad behavior. And so, um, like I said, this was recent and I'm still sort of processing the trauma of second guessing myself when this person engaged in that hot and cold behavior. Luckily, um, and this is critical, uh, Jane sort of raised this before, but this notion of allies at work, there were people who had anecdotes and stories who affirmed what I was experiencing. And so I didn't dwell in that place of self-doubt for too long, but this hot and cold behavior was absolutely a tactic for control. And it absolutely uh, left me in a very sort of bad mental and emotional state. I mean, and so just so you're aware, like I said, I, I can't deal with stuff like that. So I had to quit. But that the trauma associated with quitting, like, it, it wasn't like, I'm giving you two weeks notice. It was stuff hit the fan. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I leave effective immediately. And I have never done that in my life, which should be 
um, demonstrative for the people who know me that this was like a bad situation. But the crux of the behavior that I was experiencing was this hot and cold behavior. And I was constantly asking myself, is this a me problem? I, I reached out to colleagues and said, hey, help me see this with a different perspective so that I'm not making a rash decision or jumping to the wrong conclusion. And it was all the same. Like I had at least half a dozen people verify that this was a historical issue. And the, the sad part is that that is not everyone's reality. Not everyone is going to have someone who affirms uh, whether or not what they're experiencing is what they're experiencing. And so I think in talking about hot and cold behavior, you know, it's one of the many toxic behaviors, especially in a supervisor sort of subordinate uh, relationship that one might experience. And it is absolutely toxic. It is absolutely real. And um, it, it's something that needs to be uh, addressed, you know. Um, and, yeah, it's just one of those things that you don't even know. Like, it takes a couple instances to really make sure, like, right. this is like, something. Like, is this just me? I mean, I'm so sorry. And I, I know we've talked about this, Elle, but I think the hot and cold is one of the ones that similar to gaslighting, because they're in the same family, they're closely related, that to your point, if you don't get your reality validated by someone else, it can really send you into a dark, dark place yeah. of undermining everything. And something else that stuck out to me as you were talking about the control piece that I think is very evident with this supervisor is, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but um, I think Dr. Keisha Thomas, who I believe is now a Dean at University of Alabama at Birmingham, just Google, just to make sure I got my citation (laughs) correct. But I believe that she is cited as the person who coined the term pet to threat, which is Mm. particularly the case for Mm -hmm. Black folks in the workplace, and I think especially Black women. I don't know if you've heard this term before yeah. as life, but I think that's something else that is almost like a like a subcategory of absolutely hot and cold, right? Where absolutely. essentially it's exactly what you described. You come in, you're loved, and then God forbid you have opinions, right? Or you challenge. <laughs> and right? suddenly you went from being the shining black unicorn to ooh, immediate stereotype, angry black woman, threat to my power. Now I need to do everything I can to control, yes. undermine and destabilize this person. Absolutely. absolutely. No, the pets of threat concept absolutely fits neatly into this. And what's um, important to highlight in that pets of threat sort of tra- transition, if you will, like in my personal instance and what I was describing, I was challenging like that person's uh, negative behavior. Like they were behaving positively in right. some instances, but they were also engaging, simultaneously engaging in bullying behavior. And with pets are threat, you don't even have to be challenging that individual's negative behavior. You could just be challenging their opinion, their ideas, just adding a different anything. perspective. Exactly. 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 So, no, I think um, you're right. Pets a threat is definitely a way to uh, characterize sort of this slide. And it's quick. 
this slide, um, well, first of all, the, the hot and cold behavior and this slide from um, being, you know, a favorite person of the staff to I can't control you. I can't control what you say. And therefore, you know, you're a threat to 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 my authority. You are a threat to my control over, you know, the, the hearts and minds of the people in this organization. Um, and I know so many of us have experienced that. I know I definitely have. Um, and I would even I would even say that it's probably in my like top three toxic workplace behaviors. Like if this this was a for real feud game, this would be the one that got the highest answer for me. Right. Hundred percent agree. I think I've similarly had meetings where just like you, public praise and then private complete takedown of yes. everything that I do. And I think it often the even more vicious variant of this can be when it starts out small, right? Yeah. It starts out with praise and then like, hey, you know, L, there was this thing you did that I didn't think was great. And it can it can almost sometimes be camouflaged as constructive mm -hmm. criticism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then it starts to build and suddenly yep. nothing you do is right. And you are constantly just trying to figure out what, like, what do I do to make my supervisor happy? How do I make this work? Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but I think for me, it took me a good number of months, one, to be even work up the courage to talk to colleagues about it because I yeah. was new because everyone I knew feared my manager. And secondly, when I did finally work up the courage, I remember one of my friends telling me, look, you're actually in an abusive relationship with your mm -hmm. manager because they have so much control over your everyday well-being, and you're constantly subject to their emotional whims. Mm -hmm. And this manager, when I did work up the courage to finally confront them, with the help of another peer who helped reinforce that similar to you where there were half a dozen cases there were about eight instances of other people See? feeling this way and he turned it right back on me mm -hmm. he suddenly became the victim he'd had a hard year it was so difficult for him and i was yeah. thinking you just did all of this di okay that okay. okay i see but okay <laughs> <laughs> right. And so now I go back often to this article that came out, I think in 2016 now in the New York Times um, about psychological safety. Yes. Because everything that we've talked about today, the existence of those things points to a lack of psychological safety. Hello. 3% of Black folk want to return to in-person work. Which means 97% do not. <laughs> Margin of error. Okay, people. And for folks who may not be familiar with this term, although I think it's kind of picked up quite a bit of traction, I think it was coined by uh, the professor Amy Edmondson at Harvard's Business School. And she defines it as a sense of confidence that the team will not embarrass, reject, or punish someone for speaking up, which now if you've heard... E L stories you can tell like just from the hot and cold 
that's right. That's not a thing. Not a thing. Non-existent. No such thing right. as psychological safety. And I'm curious, like for you, Elle, what has that absence of psychological safety because of all of these winning toxic behaviors we've just talked about mean in the workplace? You know, like I mentioned, it's not a situation whereby a person just powers through and can ignore what's happening around them. Um, it absolutely undermines your your emotional and physical well-being. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, from an emotional and mental standpoint, it's it's higher anxiety, and it's not just for you, uh, because more than likely, this uh, these kinds of behaviors are also being directed at certain members of the team, right? And it's creating a larger team dynamic where they're Everyone is anxious and that absolutely, you know, anxiety undermines trust. Like if right. you're worried about your boss flogging you, then you're more likely to worry about covering your own butt, being kind of stay quiet. Of your colleagues. Exactly. Um, you know, you know, starting engaging in workplace saboteur like behaviors, right? Because it, it almost, has the potential to create a cutthroat environment, one where team members are actively undermining each other because they want to be have most favored status with their supervisor. And so it's absolutely um, detrimental um, to team dynamics, like the absence of psychological safety. If everybody does not feel safe, no one feels safe. No one should feel safe. Um, related to that is like less productivity. Like, if you're too busy expending emotional energy on doing with your own emotions as well as your team members, you're not engaged in the work at a high level. You're not doing your very best. Uh, in fact, that anxiety is probably leading you to make more mistakes. Um, right. You're to so be terrified of every step. Absolutely. You can't even make these small decisions. Exactly. You're inefficient. Um definitely uh, uh, less innovation, right? You're like, what is the formula that will satisfy my boss the most? Right? right. Like, I'm, I'm afraid to rock to that the vote. Yes. I'm sticking to the floor formula um, and I'm not doing anything else unless that person tells me to do something else. Um, I'm, I don't feel psychologically safe enough to, to, to share an idea that is equally efficient or even more efficient in my health team. Um, and yeah, lower retention. And that definitely applies to me, right? Listen, if Same. I feel psychologically unsafe, the likelihood that I am going to stay on your job for <laughs> more than a little bit is slim to none, just because I'm not built like my forebears. I do not have. And I'm not minimizing what I do have. What I'm saying is my sensitivity will not allow me to remain in places that actively undermine my well-being. There's a recognition that I have to make money um, in order. I have to sell my labor in order to support myself. I haven't come up with some great business idea that would make me insanely wealthy. 
And so I know I have to work, but I don't have to work here. And that's like my life, my mantra. I mean, I think the other piece here is you said that you're not built like your forebears, but I think sometimes we also unnecessarily romanticize the choices that our forebears didn't feel like they actually had. And what I mean by that is our forebears did it because they had no option and there's no reason why we should feel like we need to stand for it because, and you pointed out that it's your sensitivity that doesn't allow you to do it, but I would just change that. Maybe I think it's your humanity that doesn't allow you to do it. It's not even about how sensitive you are. We're asking for the bare minimum here. The bare minimum. And I, I mean, I definitely, um, I don't romanticize. I think my, my, my forebears went through a lot of nonsense. Um, right. And, and this is not to say you personally, but I think there's this discourse, right? Between yeah. like Zoomers, it's a boomer, I don't even know the right, you know, yeah, I mean, at this point, we're now considered elder millennials, apparently. Geriatric. Woo! Right. Right. But I think there's this, oh, people these days, like they're just not as strong as their predecessors. It's like, no, no, that resilience is there, but I don't need to tap into it every single time And I don't when you to. have proven you don't deserve that. And I mm-hmm. don't want to expend it in this context. Mm-mm. No, you're right. It absolutely, it, it's your second point in terms of sensitivity. I, I see my sensitivity as a superpower, but you're absolutely right in terms of like, it's just me honoring my humanity. It's saying, it's an active decision to say that I am a human being and I deserve that. And right. I am not going to put up with it, irrespective of whether I'm sensitive or not. Um, because I don't think even people who are less sensitive than I, uh, or whatever, you know, the, that on that spectrum, whatever the opposite emotion is or experience is, I don't think they internalize it less. I don't think they, they, they let it gloss over them. It affects them differently, but it, at the end of the day, it still affects them. Um, and it still undermines their ability to live their best life. And so, no, you're absolutely right. If my, my humanity says, I'm not taking this. Um, and I don't think I will ever sort of move from that. Um, but broad, more broadly speaking, high stress environments t- typically do have lower retention. You're seeing a lot of high turnover because people get burned out. Not just me, a lot of other people. Um, and I mean, you and what? all of the US. This is why we're just seeing all these articles about people not being wanting to return to work, not wanting to work in places that don't value them, don't pay them for Mm -hmm. their dues and their contributions. And put them in dangerous situations, you know, Um, without, um, well, not, not just putting them in dangerous situations, first of all, but also not compensating them for the level for the of danger threat. that they're exposed, exactly for what they're exposed to, or potentially could be exposed to. So, yeah, trash, unsafe, psychologically unsafe. So many workplaces. We need to do something. So, L, what's our workable wisdom today? You know, if it isn't apparent, um, and I definitely, Jay said this over and over again throughout today's episode, which is this notion of we're touching on toxic workplace behaviors. But this is just this is just a drop in the bucket. There are layers upon layers upon layers. And this 
And talking about these things is really an invitation for everyone to think critically about the nature of their workplace interactions, to think introspectively about how and the ways in which work might leave you feeling depleted and the why behind that. Um, because for so long, there has not been language. We're still acquiring language and, and labeling. And I do think, you know, labeling uh, to a certain extent is a good thing, but there are so many things that elude a label. And so it's, a, it's an opportunity and it's an invitation to reflect on how work creates discomfort, how uh, the ways in which it does that, particularly in terms of workplace interactions with other people, right? There are thing, different things that can contribute to a toxic workplace environment. Like it can be literally toxic. Like you can have mold at the job, you know what I'm saying? Right. Or slippery floors or cranes everywhere. Um, but we're talking about your interpersonal interactions. And so, um, you know, as I mentioned, there are a range of toxic behaviors. This is just a drop in the bucket. But um, I think we need to collectively and individually start to process to understand what's happening at work so that one, we can understand it, two, we can acknowledge it, and three, we can do something about it um, at some point because. For humanity's sake, no one should have to endure this in the workplace. We do not have to, um, we should not have to experience this. And for a lot of people, especially folks without generational wealth, or even if you have generational wealth, for a lot of people, we endure these places for financial reasons. And we understand that. We understand that you have to support yourself. You have to make a living. Um, but I think it's important for our, our well-being and to move the conversation forward, especially with respect to discrimination of any kind um, and just um, antisocial behavior in the workplace. To move forward in that conversation towards addressing it is to think about the sources of discomfort in terms of your interpersonal interactions. Um, so reflect on those behaviors and to, you know, eventually get to a place where you can do something about it. You know, I don't have the answers. Jay probably doesn't have, you know, we don't have the answers for how to deal with this. We're still just working through it ourselves. But just being able to have a space to talk about it, to reflect on it, um, especially um, in the absence of, of affirming people in places or people that will help you process through that. Sit with yourself. Read some of the, the literature and we'll include links to the articles that we touched on in the show notes, but like work to really fully understand what's happening so that you can, can create a world where you don't have to deal with that or you can process that in a more uh, constructive way. I don't know. That's, that's sort of my, my work of business. And what about you, Jen? Yeah, I mean, plus one, and I know that sounds cliche, but truly, I agree with everything that you've pointed out. And I think one additional note is that, to your point, Elle, we don't have all the solutions because what toxic looks like is so variable within each of our workplaces, depending on the many facets of our identities 
And I think one thing that's also important for us to remember is especially if you're from a group that's consistently underestimated or historically excluded for a range of systemic reasons, particularly if you're in the States, is you have to remember that we are living in a world that is often hostile to our existence or our Mm -hmm. way being. Mm-hmm. And as much as people preach about self-care and introspection, we also have to recognize that there is only so much that we as individuals can do to help ourselves. Mm-hmm. But for those managers, peers, all those folks out there, we hope that you're also internalizing this and doing more to create better workplaces so that we don't have to have as many conversations about this right. to people that language because as an individual we can only do so much when that hostility is endless right right we can't self-care our way out of a toxic work work situation like that no, that work no, ma'am <laughs> that work is on both both ends yep exactly well Thank you, Elle. This was very cathartic for me personally to talk through all of the toxicity. I'll have to tally up the points to see which one of us won out with our uh, <laughs> toxic dynamics. We'll see what the leaderboard says. But that's all for today. Thanks for joining us.